Friends, why don't you take your Bibles now and turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, and if you're uh, using one of the Bibles on the pew and back of the pew in front of you, you'll find it on page 423. One of my favorite writers from the last century, uh, I don't know when he died, but he was writing from like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, was a guy from Mississippi named Walker Percy. Trained as a doctor, decided that wasn't for him, and took up novel writing instead, and then was a huge hit on that front too. Some of my favorite things that Walker Percy wrote actually weren't his novels, but, but writings about writing and what makes writing tough for a modern writer like himself. There's just one essay that he wrote with a super dramatic title, The State of the Novel, in which he compared the challenge that was facing a writer like him, writing in the 70s, to that that faced earlier writers like Charles Dickens or John Steinbeck. You know, take Steinbeck, for example, Grapes of Wrath, classic novel about Depression-era America and, and those people who were so hard on their luck and trying to farm in Oklahoma, the Okies, that they decided to pick up everything and move west to California in hope of a better job. And Steinbeck wrote about those Okies who'd lost everything in the Depression and went west to sunny California. He could bank on readers knowing what he was talking about, on them understanding pretty quickly what had gone wrong. They'd lost everything. Depression had come. Farms weren't yielding. And on what could be done about it. Go west, young man. Pick up stakes. Go to happier places in search of more jobs than you can find where you already are. He was able to rely on people understanding pretty well what poverty feels like when he wrote about it and and how better land and more jobs might help with that problem, might promise a better future if anybody could survive the journey out there. But what about novelists like Percy, Percy asked, writing not about those Okies from the 1930s, but about their great-grandkids? On the terms of Steinbeck's story, these folks, their great-grandkids, they won. They have it all. They got everything that Steinbeck's characters set out to gain, everything they seem to want, Percy wrote. But they seem ready any minute to slide physically and spiritually into the Pacific Ocean. The novelist today, Percy wrote, trying to make sense of middle-class life in America is like a psychiatrist gazing at a patient who in one sense lives in the best of all possible worlds and yet suffering from a depression and anxiety which he doesn't understand. The challenge of a writer in Percy's time, as he put it somewhere else, was to bring to the page what he called a death in life. People who seem to be living lives which are good by all standards, sociological, but who somehow seem more dead than alive. Percy wrote that back in 1977. I think what he was on to then is no less obvious and no less confusing today. I see signs all over the place. We are simply not as satisfied as we think we ought to be. About 10 years ago, I saw, uh, I saw someone put a, a label on this problem that I thought was really helpful. He called it the progress paradox why things get better and people feel worse. 
was a writer named Greg Easterbrook. He looked at stats on a whole host of quality of life issues. You know, things like health care and disposable income and, and housing and food security and, and leisure activities and the time to enjoy them. He looked at a whole bunch of things. And on all these different metrics, he, he noticed that worldwide, things are getting better and better and better for more and more and more people. Not for everybody by any stretch, but for more and more people. And yet at the same time, following that same arc, we're reporting more and more levels of depression and anxiety than ever before. We're reporting a restless, kind of aimless, kind of malaise about life overall. And it isn't just midlife crisis where this happens. It's not just when people hit my age at 40 and wonder what, all, what it's all for. It's happening at younger and younger ages. It's being reported under, uh, about people who are millennials and even Gen Z. It's, it's college campuses that are rife now with mental illness. The more resources you have at your disposal, I think we're learning. The more opportunity you have to learn that what you think you want isn't really what you want. <laughs> or think about how distracted we are these days. Just one more example of this problem. See if this lands on you. I, it's all, I, I think like everywhere I look, I'm hearing people complain about how distracted we are by all of our devices and our entertainment options and the never-ending barrage of, of information coming at us over the world wide web. And I see a lot of hand-wringing, you know, about, okay, what is this doing to us? All this technology is, it, it, it's ruining our relationships. It's destroying our ability to focus. How are we ever gonna learn the things we need to learn? It fuels burnout. It, it means we don't ever know when we're working and when we're not working. It, it distorts our ability to unplug and unwind. It ruins our experiences of life, simple pleasures, and on and on and on it goes, and there's a lot of truth in that hand-wringing. But, but I'm interested in another angle. Why do we want to be so distracted in the first place? Why... When given the option to distract ourselves with more and more technologies than our ancestors could have ever imagined, why, when we have the option to numb our minds in one after another alternate, alternate online universe, why, when we, when we can put ourselves through the whiplash of Netflix and TikTok and 24 cable news, why are we so quick to say yes? Surely it's not because we're all loving life so much. Nobody wants to be distracted from their happiness, do they? The more we crave distraction, more likely it is that there's something we don't want to face up to. Is any of this resonating? I wonder, has there ever been a time in your whole life where you didn't feel like you were missing something? Have you ever reached the goal that you were working toward? Ever reached out and grabbed hold of what it was you were stretching for and then thought to yourself, that's it. I'm good now. I've finally gotten it. I, I have never once felt that way. What do you think it would take even to feel truly satisfied? I don't know of a more insightful observer of this restless nature to the human heart than St. Augustine was back in, the, back in the early days of church history. He said, he, he boiled it down to this, what it would take to be happy boils down to being able to have and to hold what you love. Having it fully, holding it 
securely. When you have and hold what you love, then you'll be happy. To fully possess something, to keep it without the threat of any loss, that sounds about right to me. And I think that's precisely what we're never allowed to have in this world as it is. And what we have, there's always something more we, 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 we want from it. And, and in what we have for as long as we have it, we know it's never ours to keep anyways. Eventually, we got to let it go. That's life. That's life in the world as it is, even in the best of times. Perhaps even especially in the best of times, we feel this ache. I love how C.S. Lewis captures this problem in his chapter on hope in his wonderful book called Mere Christianity. Lewis writes, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, they're longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm talking about the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent. The chemistry may have been a very interesting job. But something, something has evaded us. Can you relate to what Lewis is describing there? I bet you can. But I wonder, how do you account for it? How do you explain how we have all these longings that nothing in this world can satisfy. How did we get here? And what can be done about it? Well, friends, welcome back to our series on the hope of heaven and to how the promise of a world to come brings perspective and power to life in the meantime, each week for the next couple of months, we're going to be taking one little aspect of what the Bible has to say about the world to come, about heaven, and holding it up to the light like a diamond that we twist this way and that, catching different aspects of its beauty and power. We're going to take that diamond and turn it from one angle to another week after week to pick up what the Bible has to say, not just about the world to come, what God has in store for his people, uh, but, but also to see how those promises affect specific aspects of our life here and now in the meantime. So this morning, our topic is the promise of fullness of joy that'll last forever in the presence of God. Fullness of joy that lasts forever in the presence of God. The presence of God is what makes heaven what it is. The Bible is so clear about that. And we're going to pick up that theme this morning and explore it using one of the earliest passages to go there, Psalm 16, a psalm of David. We're not going to say, go over everything that this psalm has to say. We're going to use it, especially its first verses and its last verses, to, to pull our way towards the beauty of heaven as the Bible describes it to us. But we are going to anchor our time in this psalm, and before we go any further, I want to read it to you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in Psalm 16, verse 1, and read to the end of the psalm.
a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. You can be seated. Three questions to walk us through it this morning, guys. Question one, how did we get here? Question two, where are we going? Question three, how do we live in the meantime? How do we get here? Where are we going? How do we live in the meantime? Question one, how did we get here? How did we get to a life in which nothing fully satisfies? Well, that... That's a question that the whole big story of the Bible explains for us. And that big story of the Bible is right in the backdrop of Psalm 16. When David says to the Lord in verse 2, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. When David says in verse 4 that the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply, David speaks as someone who has learned the hard way, a truth we were made to know by instinct. All behind those words is the story of the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, the story of Genesis 1 to 3, the crucial truth about how God designed us and how sin has distorted us. We can't understand how we got here to this world as it is until we understand how God designed us and how sin has distorted us. That whole story lies behind what David says here in Psalm 16. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. He creates the heavens and the earth there's nothing that exists apart from his decision to make something besides himself. And everything that exists, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us, all of it reflects the goodness of the one who made it. Step by step by step, we're walked through creation as God makes one thing after another and calls it good. The sky, good. The sun, the moon, and the stars, all good. The land and the sea, they're good. And everything that's in them is good too. From the smallest insect to the largest whale. And then when God makes man and woman, when he makes Adam and Eve, he looks on them and he calls them very good. He makes them special. In his own image, Genesis tells us, to have a special role in the world and enjoy a special relationship with him. He feeds them 
with all sorts of delicious food all around them. He gives them in the garden, in one another, friendship and marriage and sex and eventually children. He gives them meaningful work to do. And at the center of all of it, of all that goodness that God gives to them, he gives them himself. His presence is there in that garden with them. Day by day, they relate to him. And all of it, that whole story, that whole scene, it's pointing to a crucial aspect of what God originally meant for humanity in his world. The unique glory of being human in God's world is that only humans were made not just to reflect God's goodness, but to experience it, to know it, to recognize that goodness, and even more to relate to God through that goodness. You know, all the things that God made, all those insects and those whales, like they testify to the goodness of God just by being. You look at them and you see God is great. But it takes a human to recognize that there is a God who made it all and who made it good. It takes a human, as another psalm puts it, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And in the garden, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They did exactly what they were made to do. They enjoyed all these good gifts that God had given them. And they did it with the full knowledge of where all that goodness came from. And whose world they were living in. And who they were to him. In the garden, with the presence of God right there at the center of it, there was zero confusion between the giver and all his good gifts. There was no good apart from God, and they knew it. Or they do it until they didn't know it anymore. The fall of Adam and Eve into sin from Genesis 3, that broke this perfect relationship. The serpent enters the picture to tempt Eve with fruit that God had not given to them. They were surrounded by things God had given to them. They were chock full of goodness straight from God's hand for them to enjoy. The serpent holds up the one fruit God had given to them and says, isn't this good? And it did look good in Eve's eyes. The serpent told her, you ought to have this good thing. And his lie introduced a new possibility that had never before been considered. Oh, maybe God is a threat to goodness in my life rather than the source of all goodness in my life. Maybe I'll have more good if I grab it apart from God. And when Adam and Eve took what God had not given, they for the very first time did grasp at something good apart from God and unleashed hell on earth because their disobedience it brought a separation it drove a wedge between God and humanity between humanity and all of God's good gifts in this good world between Adam and Eve and that garden of paradise and the reason, friends, to drive this home, the reason that we are so relentlessly dissatisfied right now is that sin has separated us from the presence of God and apart from his presence, distorted our relationship to his good world too. Verse 4 in, chapter, in Psalm 16, 
where David talks about the sorrows multiplying when you run after another guard, that is almost a direct quote from Genesis 3 and from what God said in the garden would happen through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. That things that once gave joy now come clouded with sorrow. Things that once communicated the goodness of God with crystal clarity are now separated from him and therefore from much of their goodness. You grasp at what's good apart from God and now every good thing is laced with sorrow. Childbirth will be laced with sorrow, Genesis 3 said. Work will be. Human relationships will be. I mean, life itself, the whole thing is now shadowed by death. And through it all, we're still surrounded by all this good. We know this stuff is good. It looks like it should be satisfying if we could grab it, but it just isn't. Because apart from God, nothing good is good enough. You tracking with me? Is it making sense? Um, I don't know if this illustration is going to work, but I'm going to bear with me here. Uh, about six months ago, I had the chance to travel to one of the most beautiful places I have ever been and speak to some friends who were serving there uh, some in, in Christian ministry. We, we traveled to Rhodes, the island that now is part of Greece. It's off the coast of Turkey, and it's just drop-dead gorgeous. I was taking in some of the most beautiful things my eyes have ever seen. The, the foliage, the coastline, the jagged rocks and the sea, the color of the Mediterranean. I'm eating some of those delicious food that I've ever had. I'm going to visit these incredible ancient castles on this island that was once a hub for all sorts of knights and their activities in that part of the world. It was stunning in a way. But I couldn't shake the sense that it was also somewhat less real than it should have been because the whole time I was there looking at everything I was looking at, I had this profound sense that my family wasn't with me. And so it was like only part of me was really seeing it. Like when, I, when I'm looking at that coastline, knowing how much my wife would enjoy seeing that, it's almost like it's not real. And when I'm going and touring these ancient castles and knowing how much my boys love that kind of thing, it's almost like I'm reading about it in a book, not actually seeing it with my eyes. Separated from them, these good things aren't fully good. There's, there's a kind of unreality to them. And, and what Genesis is telling us, what, what David is alluding to in chapter 16 or Psalm 16, is that our whole experience of life is kind of like that now, outside the garden, apart from God. It's real and it's good and it's beautiful and we want it. But there's something about it that just isn't what it should be. It's not fulfilling. It's not full. That's why what we're longing for always evades us, as Lewis put it. That's why we feel alienated or kind of separated from, from something we long to be part of. We, this world just feels like it, it ought to be so much more. And the reason it does is that it, it should be. It really should be so much more. And on our souls is etched the memory of the garden where it was so much better than this. And on our souls is etched the hope that one day, through Jesus, it will be again. You know, that passage from C.S. Lewis that I read to you earlier, it comes from a chapter that's about the hope of heaven. The whole chapter is about the hope of heaven. It was a bleak section that I read to you earlier. Relatable, but, but bleak. Not meant to discourage you, but meant to point you ahead. To show you that whether you've realized it or not, you're longing for heaven right now. And you can't live well without the hope of what God is going to do then. Lewis describes that, that relentless sense that we're not getting something that we want as a sign that we are actually made with the ability to be satisfied. Here's what he said. Creatures are not born with desires. 
unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. So if I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us is true. And now you're ready to hear it. Now you're ready to hear what the Bible tells you about heaven and how that hope can transform our experience of life in the meantime. We've seen how we got here where no one is ever really satisfied. Now let's look at where we're going. Point two, where are we going? At the center of the Bible's teaching on the world to come is the promise that God himself will be there. In that world, the separation that our sin has caused between us and God, and that separation that our sin has caused between ourselves and our world, that wedge that has been driven between the giver and his good gifts that puts them always in competition, it will be erased forever because we will be with him. Everything good about heaven flows from the fact that God is there. In a way, I, I want you to think about every sermon from this point on in the series as about lifting up one or another promise of what it'll be like to be with God. He is the point of heaven. You can see this theme all over the place in the Bible. It's in the Psalms where the psalmists are always longing to be in his presence, panting after him like a deer pants for water. You can see it in the prophets that promise that on the backside of exile and all that Israel brought on themselves through their sin, God will be their God. They'll be his people and they'll be together again in the land he prepared for them. You can see it in Jesus' teaching. You can see it in Paul's letters. You can see it most clearly of all in probably the most beautiful and familiar passage about heaven at all of all, Revelation 21. Where, the, where, where John looks ahead and he sees that new world, the new heavens and the new earth, pictured as a city coming down from the sky. Where what makes the city joyous and safe and beautiful is the fact that God's presence is spread all through it. Listen to this, Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, and neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Did you hear it? He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he'll be with them as their God. His presence is everywhere heaven is. And one of the first places in the Bible that holds out this hope applies that hope to our experience of dissatisfaction in this life, our ache for something more. It's the conclusion to Psalm 16. Verse 10 of the psalm, look there. David expresses his hope that God's not going to let death have the last word. 
The word Sheol is, is the Hebrew word shorthand for the grave and, and that ultimate separation between ourselves and our bodies, between ourselves and this world, and, and especially between ourselves and God. It, he's saying, you're not going to abandon me there. You're not going to leave me to that separation. You won't let death have the last word. He's going to bridge the gap that sin opened. And then verse 11 sets out what God's going to do instead. You make known to me the path of life. So it's a path of life. But where does it lead? What sort of life are we talking about? And then the, the verse answers us. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Enjoying God's gifts in God's presence means fullness of joy that lasts forever. It means finally having and forever holding what you love. One Old Testament scholar sums it up like this. The joys and the pleasures are presented as wholly satisfying and endlessly varied. For they're found in both what he is and what he gives. The joys of his presence and the pleasures of his right hand. The presence of God will be finished with all competition between loving him and loving what he gives us. Friends, I think this speaks right to one of the common confusions that, that we often have about what life will be like in heaven. Some texts describe heaven as, as, as full of eating and drinking, feasting and partying, as, as talking to friends and doing good work and playing music and taking in beautiful scenery and all sorts of other things that we enjoy so much about life in our world now. There are a lot of texts that describe heaven like that. We will, for, after all, need a, a new body to enjoy heaven. We'll need a body that has all those senses to enjoy all those good things. But then, then there are also texts that talk all, all about worshiping God about praising him, about singing songs like we do in church. And so we can wonder a lot of times, like, which is it? Are we going to be having fun or are we going to be going to church for eternity? <laughs> Either or. <laughs> it's an understandable confusion that comes from a concern underneath it. Sometimes we think about worship as, what, as much as we might enjoy this hour and a half that we spend together every Sunday. We can think of it as a time when we press pause on all the other things that we like to do. You know, we might tack on a potluck to a church service every now and then, but apart from communion, we don't eat or drink when we get together in here. We don't talk to our friends, uh, not while we're worshiping anyways. We don't get to take in the beauty of creation besides the light we can glimpse coming in through these windows. I could go on, but you get the point. If heaven is this world of unending worship, it, it can be easy to imagine it as a kind of shrinking down of the world we love so much now. A diminishment of it, not a wonderful renewal of it or expansion of it. We're going to spend our time contemplating God and all of his wondrous attributes? Or are we going to spend our time actively working on things that matter to us? Do we have to sit in a pew really still for all of eternity? Or can we carry on having fun? And friends, the short answer is, like, for the most part, I don't know what we're going to be doing with all that time. I don't know what we're going to be seeing. I don't know what it'll feel like to be there. The Bible says not very much about what it's going to look like. It's too far beyond our imaginations. But I do think some of our confusion and maybe some of our worry about being bored in heaven comes from an assumption that we can either be enjoying good things in the world or we can be worshiping God, but we can't do both, at least not at the same time. And in heaven, that choice is gone. 
in heaven in a way that will be perfect beyond all our ability to imagine now. You will not have to choose. We will be finished once and for all with any competition between love for the giver and love for what he gives. There will be no way to confuse the creator and his creatures anymore. In God's presence, everything that we love most about the gifts he gives us in this world will be wonderfully, unimaginably expanded. And in God's presence, every fear of loss will be completely and absolutely eliminated. I don't know what it will mean to see God face to face. But the psalmist says that in God's presence, we're going to know fullness of joy. We're here, we're always left wanting more. I think I can understand that. I do know the difference between hearing from somebody by text and talking to them on the phone. I know the difference between talking to somebody on the phone and talking to them on a video call where I can see their face. I know the difference between a video call and actually spending an hour with a friend over coffee. In each situation, the context is different. The clarity of communication is different. And if you love that person, the joy is different. All the gifts of each type of communication come from the same friend. They're all helping you connect to them. But a lot more of them comes through when you're in person over coffee than when he's just shooting you a text real quick. I think all the good things that don't satisfy us here and now in this world as it is, you might think of them like text message versions of God's goodness. They're real. They're true. They're worth listening to, learning from, and enjoying. But there's just not as much of God in them, and we want more. Then and there, in heaven, in his presence, that's where we'll have it. And we'll worship him then by enjoying him completely through the world he creates to help us know him more and more and more and more. And when we do that, when we got that kind of proximity to his right hand, then the pleasures we know there, we'll know forever. We won't have to be worried about losing them. Not like here, where everything comes and everything goes. And that, friends, that right there, is why only in God's presence can we be satisfied. Only in God's presence will we fully have and forever hold what we love. So, how can we live in the meantime? While we long to go there, where we're going, how do we live in the meantime? That's point three, and it's where I want to leave you this morning. I love the way that David just overflows, almost gushes with his own gladness and rejoicing at the thought of who God is to him and the thought that one day he'll be with God where he is. Verse 9, therefore, in light of all of this, he says, my heart is currently, present tense, right here, right now, glad. My whole being rejoices right now because my flesh dwells secure. I know where I'm going. How can you share his joy now and what God has promised you then. I want to give you three tips. Three things that are important for you to claim now. Number one, you got to repent and believe in Jesus. The only way to rejoice like David did for you here and now on this side of Jesus is to repent and to believe in him. First preacher who ever gave a sermon about Jesus was Peter, one of Jesus' main disciples. And the text that Peter used for his sermon was Psalm 16. 
When he got up on what's known as the day of Pentecost and preached to that huge crowd full of the same people who had put Jesus to death, when he got up and he told them Jesus was alive again, he didn't get up there to tell them that so that they could run for their lives, that Jesus was coming back for revenge. He, he, he got up there to tell them that Jesus is alive again because Psalm 16 was always about him. When, when the psalm says you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption, it was talking about Jesus who wouldn't be allowed to rot in the grave. He's alive again. And now you can get in on everything that he came to make possible for you. He was the one who never chose anything good apart from the Lord. He made the Lord his portion completely. He said, it's my food to do my Father's will. And when he died, he didn't die because he deserved it, not because he ever chose to be separated from God. He died as a sacrifice so we could be forgiven for our rejection of God and then given again the gift of his presence that we rejected through our sin in the first place. The punchline of Peter's sermon on Psalm 16 is repent and believe, come back, come to Jesus. He'll give you what you rejected in the first place. He died and rose again so that he could. And that promise is here for you today. All the goodness that heaven promises is only available through Jesus. We would love to talk to you about how you can repent and believe in him if you haven't done that yet. And if you have, the second thing to know about life in the meantime is to just go ahead and, and reset your expectations about life in this world. I think you ought to go ahead and reset your expectations for life in this world. On this side of heaven, apart from God's presence, you just can't be fully satisfied. It's not going to happen. Just accept it. Accepting it actually is, is, is a huge step towards experiencing more and more true satisfaction in the good gifts God will give you now while you wait. So think about satisfaction not as an either or, I am satisfied or I'm not satisfied, but as a spectrum. We're like way down on this end, you've got fullness of joy in the presence of God, pleasures forevermore. That's on this end. And like on this end, all the way down here, you've got, I can't get no satisfaction. So in between those, huge spectrum. And what we want to do in life in the meantime is move our satisfaction meter over this way as much as we can get it towards fullness of joy that'll come forevermore. How do we do that? Only when we accept full satisfactions coming later and stop trying to grasp at that fullness everywhere we see something good. You know, when we grasp at things that we think we can't live without in this life, when we spend all our time and money basically just nesting, our satisfaction in life actually goes down. But when we open up our hands, when we just receive God's goodness wherever he shares it with us for as long as he does, knowing it can't last forever, but one day heaven is coming, our satisfaction in life actually goes up. Have you noticed a difference in your satisfaction in an experience like, like a mountaintop view or a family gathering over the holidays or even a sporting event uh, between when you're just soaking up the moment or trying to capture it with your phone, that perfect shot to make it last forever. The, the end result, what ends up on that little screen is, is such a shrunken version of it that you don't ever look at it anyways because it's not that fulfilling to do so. There's so much for making it last. And even in the moment, have you noticed that your joy is shrunken too because you're pulled out of the experience that you could have been enjoying and, and you're looking at all of it through something the size of your screen, trying to frame it up and hold on to it forever. How much better to just accept that the moment's not gonna last, I can't actually capture it. The one option I've really got is to enjoy it. Just to simply enjoy it for whatever it is, for as long as it's here. I think there's a, 
If you experience that ever through your cell phone camera, I think you've experienced a metaphor for what all of life is like. like. The more we try to grasp at fullness forever, which is our default mode, when we see anything that looks good, the more likely we are to shrink it down to a size that fits in our pockets and doesn't actually satisfy us as much as it could have. We go all through life looking for something to grab hold on. We look forward in experiences and relationships and objects that we can buy. You know, that's why every national park has a big gift shop. It's why vacation spots often have outlet malls nearby. You go looking for some, some transcendence. You go looking to feel something bigger than yourself, but it'd be really nice if it could fit in that luggage for the return journey too because you want to be changed and permanently so. That's our nesting and it only ever feeds disappointment. How much better to just be in the, in the world God made, enjoying the good gifts God gives, relishing every good moment for whatever it is and however long it lasts, not hoarding them, but just savoring them. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to be set free to do that rather than to keep trying to hoard unless you know one day full satisfaction is coming. Unless you know that as we, as we enjoy these good gifts little by little along the way, we're basically just rock hopping in a stream that's never going to stop flowing, that leads all the way up to a fountain that never runs dry, a fountain that is so deep you'll never reach bottom, a fountain of life that is ours to drink from and where one day we will drink from the source. Instead of thinking, is that all? The promise of heaven sets us free to think, I wonder what he's got for me next. Where else can I taste pleasure from his right hand now while I wait? And the third thing, this is where I leave you, is that all of this allows you to reframe dissatisfaction as a friend and not an enemy. This side of heaven, dissatisfaction is a gift that we'd be foolish to squander. I love how philosopher Peter Kreef put it. This kind of dissatisfaction, this separation that we're talking about all morning. He says, it's the greatest thing on earth because it leads us to heaven, which is the greatest thing of all. Friends, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to equate dissatisfaction with disappointment. It doesn't have to be that way. You, you could just acknowledge that us not being satisfied yet is not the same thing as complaining. It, it, it's hunger pains. It's hunger that's, that's an ally drawing me toward a feast that's coming. What makes this modern world go around is our temptation to throw everything we can at dissatisfaction to try to make it go away. We can spend all our time, all our money, all our focus on chasing wind as if there's something out there somewhere to take the edge off the pain. But there isn't. And God means for this reality that we can't escape to actually help us. Richard Baxter said, there is love in desire as well as in delight. And if I'm not empty of love, I know I will not long be empty of delight. I don't know what a better way to end this sermon than with his simple prayer. Lord, help me to desire until I may possess. Let's pray that prayer together now. Father, we, we do feel our desires and we have seen our temptation to try to take the edge off them with one after another after another possession we might lay hold of in this world. We have seen how empty that is. 
Thank you for breaking our hearts so that you can mend them. And we pray now by the power of your word and the promise you've given us through your son that you would help us to hold on in the hunger until you come to satisfy us forever. Help us to desire until we possess. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.